Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. Would you join with me in reading in Psalm 34, starting with verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. That's God's word for us this morning. Morning, Wingford. How are you doing today? Good. It's good to be with you. Thanks for having me. So I want to focus. Jordan said this one would be difficult, this music stand. <laughs> I want to focus on verse 8 out of uh, Psalm 34, 1 through 10 that, that we just heard read. Uh, Taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in the Lord. And there's three things, ultimately, that we're going to look at. First is I believe we're often too distracted to appreciate uh, that there is, in fact, a greater need, a greater hunger that we experience. Uh, secondly is how that greater need then manifests in our lives when we're woken up to the need. And then thirdly, uh, what it is that truly satisfies that need. First, in terms of uh, being distracted uh, from even having a greater need, I have to confess that a lot of times when I read the Psalms, uh, there, there's an emotional realism to the Psalms that in my day-to-day -day life, I'm, I'm just not in sync with. You know what I mean? I know that's not like a spiritual sounding thing to say. I'm just being like honest with you, though. Like, I read the Psalms, and in either the, the joy or the despair, like when we read some of these Davidic Psalms that, that we can, that can kind of come to, it's just not where I'm at in day-to-day -day life. In day-to-day -day life, I think usually uh, what we're trying to do is we're trying to get through the day, right? So we don't dig in too far. We don't get too far into emotional realism. We kind of find maybe even a little bit of a calloused balance so that we can go from day to day, week to week, get on with the, the months and the years of our life, and just kind of get through life. I mean, in part, because I think it's already difficult enough to get through your day sometimes. Am I right? I mean, you, you, you've got a lot to do. You're busy. You might have your family, your career, your friends, neighbors. You have different responsibilities. And, and to just kind of sit in an emotional state like we read so often in the Psalms, and maybe again, this is just a little bit of like too much confession, I can't always do that. 
I, I, or maybe not that I can't, but I just don't always do that, even if I should. Yet here's the thing, is we find ourselves living in the consequences of, of a broken world anyway. So the emotional realism, it's there, it's, it's just that we, we're not always feeling it, we're not always tapping into it when maybe we should. And so here's the thing that, that kind of gets us to the point of tapping into that emotional realism is the family tragedy strikes, right? The, the career fails, there's the blow up in your marriage, and all of a sudden, you have the emotional realism of, of some of the psalmists, right? Where, where you're being shaken awake to what's going on. And I'll tell you, um, this happened to my family very recently in one of those, this is supposed to happen to other people moments, where we were just going along in life, and it was blending from one week to the next, and we were just kind of doing our thing. Life was full, we're busy. We have five kids, they're the ones making most of the noise back there. And, and all of a sudden, the, the brakes just were hit really hard, and we were hit with some spiritual whiplash. Why? Because that emotional realism, what that can point us to is spiritual realities. It can point us to spiritual realities. And here's what I'm wanting to hear, uh, wanting you to hear from the first point. I know you're busy, but we can't afford to be asleep at the wheel of life. I know you're busy. I know you got to get from day to day, but we can't be asleep at the spiritual wheel of life. You know, have you experienced that? You continue with more and more of the same. You go on day to day, which is very much the same. And again, one week blends into the next. And pretty soon, you're missing real engagement in the worst way possible. And here's the thing about that, is that most things that are worth doing are challenging. Most things that are worth doing do not take the path of least resistance. So what do you have to do? You have to be awake. You have to, in a sense, be emotionally sober to what's happening so that you're aware then of the true spiritual need that is there. And David writes this psalm when he's, of course, he's between a rock and a hard place. He's in a very, very difficult position. Uh, some of you know about uh, David and Goliath. You know that story? You've heard it, even if you've just heard it in like a kind of a cultural reference. You know, David, he's this young man, kind of like a, kind of, you have this picture anyway of him as being like a little dude, right? And he has to go up against the Philistine champion who's like a giant. He's like a mega warrior. He's going to like kill him. He's like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, a couple feet taller, taller circa 1977, right? Like he's just gonna like rip him apart and it's gonna be a joke, but what does he do? Uh, he thinks smart, you know, he works smart, not hard, and takes him out with that sling, goes, cuts his head off, and he wins the battle on behalf of the Israelites. So what happens when, when you're the underdog and all of a sudden you have a story like that? What do people start, start saying about you? You're awesome. You know, you're, you're like the biggest hero of all time. You're the biggest winner there ever was. And here we are. We're still talking about them. There's still art focused around that. I mean, it's still a, a, an image, a word picture that's part of our society, our culture, even today, right? A David and Goliath story. So he's just becomes this 
beloved guy, and he's brought into the, the, the court of King Saul, and people are chanting things then as time goes on, like, you know, like Saul's killed his thousands, and David's killed his ten thousands. You know, like there's just this hyperbole of how awesome he is. And so now we kind of like have to focus like a little bit on your own jealousy so you can understand what David is fleeing from. Um, remember that guy or that girl in high school that was literally good at everything that they did. I'm not thinking of anyone in particular, and that's not how I came up with this illustration, but you remember that person that like, like whatever you were into, they were better at it. You know, whatever you cared about, they were better at it. You know, like whatever girl or guy that you were interested in going after, they were one step ahead, right? And it just seemed like nothing could beat them. Well, that's the kind of jealousy that there was between Saul and David, and so eventually Saul's like, you know what, I'm king, I can kill this guy if I want to. So what does David have to do? He, he goes on the run, and as he goes on the run, you know, it's a small country, he's fleeing into enemy territory. And so he, he's on the run, he doesn't have anything, he has no resources, he's fleeing into enemy territory, and it's when he's in this place, where he's gone from being like mega hero to being humbled down to basically feeling like a criminal on the run, that he, he writes this in Psalm 34. And what's the verse that really sticks out that we're, that we're, uh, we're picking out here? It's that image of taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, it's, it's that really that sensory image that here he is, he's in despair, and yet he, he writes to taste and see that the Lord is good. And that brings us to our second point, how the greater need manifests itself in our lives. The fact that we do, in fact, have a hunger that's always there that needs to be satisfied. You know, uh, David wrote and used a word picture of what he experienced as he fled. Like, so there's this link in the imagery to the reality. And again, it's that David, the great hero, you know, now, now you picture him. And what is he doing? He's hiding in a cave uh, out there, and he's hungry. He's cold at night. Again, he, he's on the run, and he is quite reasonably, he's scared out of his mind. He's scared out of his mind. He basically, in that moment, he's lost everything. So what's his greater need in life? Did he need food in that moment? Did he need to have, like, immediate needs met? Yes, but he had a greater hunger that he realized needed to be met. Did he need uh, to retreat to safety? Yes, but there was a greater safety that he needed to go to, a lasting safety. So what was David being humbled into? Listen, uh, up to that point, you know, again, David having entered the court of the king, he was a hero, he was a winner. He, I mean, this guy was just an unstoppable success. And it's understandable that the king was threatened by him. But once again, he's, he's the guy that you ironically hate for being so good, but you want to be him at the same time. You know what I mean? Like, like, he just, like he's so awesome. And so you hate him because he's a threat to you, but actually you wish that you were him. But the thing about that is no matter how great of a hero he seemed to be, or no matter how great of a hero maybe somebody you know seems to be, we all bleed red. We all bleed red. You know, what about you? Is there something in the past that you ran to as a hope that you believed that you could kind of like rest on the laurels of your accomplishments 
and you found out that it doesn't quite work that way? Or maybe, what about like right now? What are the things that you're facing right now, the challenges that you're facing right now? And it's just like the one thing that you're looking forward to that's finally going to satisfy you, right? Like, you, you, like, you know, we, we, we live for the future, you know, so you're looking, um, we'll go with relationships, right? Um, you're looking to, to date, and you want to find the right person to date. And then you're looking to find the right person to, to be engaged to, and then you get engaged. And then you're engaged, and you're planning the wedding, and you're looking forward to the wedding. And then you get married, and then what are you looking forward to? You're looking forward to maybe kids. And then you have the kids, and then you're looking forward to what's going to happen. And you're always looking forward to, to what's going to come next, and then the next thing, and then the next thing. The same thing with our careers. You know, like, hey, uh, I got to get my bachelor's degree, and I'm working hard for my bachelor's degree. All right, I got it. Now I got to work on my master's degree because now, like, everybody gets a master's degree, so I got to get that. And then you get it. And then you, you, you got to work, and you got to climb the ladder at work, and you have to get the promotions, and you have to put in that extra 10 hours a, w a week to get to where you're going. And what are we doing? We're always looking for something to satisfy that hunger by getting to the next thing. And you get there, and what do you find out? You're just hungry again. You're just hungry again. And so you, you keep on seeking, and you keep on eating, and you keep on finding that you can't be filled. And so you just continue in that pattern. And again, you know, if I have really talented people out there, and we can look at other people's lives and say, you know, if I was just like that, if I was just like David, then I would be satisfied. If I was a winner, if I was a hero like David, then... I could be satisfied. And that brings me to my third point. What is the only fulfillment of that greater need? Again, David, to that point in his life, he was an ultimate winner, but now he's on the run from the king that he's faithfully served, and he's butted up against enemy territory. He's gone into the territory, in fact, of where Goliath was from, so they're not going to welcome him, so he pretends to be insane, to escape being murdered by the enemies of that nation because they're just like, whatever, get this guy out of here. Obviously, something's gone wrong with him. And again, now picture him, David, this great hero, hiding out in a cave, hungry, cold at night, and scared out of his mind. All the marks of excellence and dignity and accomplishment are all things that now he cannot call upon. It's just him. It's just him hiding out. It's just him in a cave hoping that he's going to make it to the next day. And in godly humility, he recognizes that the only food that will satisfy is knowing God himself. And what's the word picture again of Psalm 34, verse 8? It's of a hungry person needing to be satisfied. Just the way we can't be satisfied by getting to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and always just finding we're still hungry. He recognizes that there is a greater hunger that can only be satisfied by God himself. And what's the, the word picture of food provide? Well, if you don't eat, you don't live, right? And so if you want to be fueled, if you want to be filled, and you want to have that lasting satisfaction only God, only God can provide that. And so what then is the picture that Christ gives us of, of that church? Well, communion. 
that we symbolically, we take bread and wine when we gather as a church and we together rehearse that Jesus is flesh, is true flesh, and that Jesus' blood is true blood, and that in the imagery of the bread and the wine is the, as the flesh and the blood of Jesus that was spilt for us, that the greatest need to be accepted and reconciled to God is bridged between us and God through the complete work of Christ. And why is that? Why should we believe that Christ is the one that reconciles us to God? Well, you know, if there was a God and he wanted to make himself truly known, you know how I think he would make himself truly known? He would make himself known in a personal manner to his creation. Uh, he would come as the living fulfillment of all that was true of the being and character of God that had been spoken of the prophets. And then he would demonstrate that his words and his very life that he modeled were worth living for because they were worth dying for. And then in the dying for that truth that was worth living for, he would prove that it was truth by raising up to life again. And that's exactly what we have in Jesus and that is the God, Jesus Christ, that David proclaims in his psalm when he writes, taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, has anybody stopped and thought, why, why mix the metaphors? Taste and sight are different senses. Is David confused? <laughs> why not say, taste and know that the Lord is good? Like, you know what cilantro tastes like, right? I don't know why I just picked that. That was super random. <laughs> You know, but you know what black pepper tastes like. Like you have like something in your brain that, you know, signals like you think about it like, yeah, I know what cilantro tastes like. You don't, you don't say like, yeah, I taste and I see what cilantro tastes like. No, well, what's interesting is a little bit more rigid translation from the Hebrew would be uh, becomes visible. So you taste of the God who is good and he becomes visible. Isn't that interesting? He becomes visible. And as David writes, it's like maybe he doesn't exactly know in a sense that he's almost prophesying, but what is the God who is good? What, is he, what did he do? He became visible in the person of Christ. In verses 4 and 7 that were also read, uh, verse 4 says that the Lord delivered David from all his fears, which is exactly what Christ does in giving us a true and lasting hope. And in verse 7 says that the angel of the Lord, who is very often, if you've ever heard, it's a big word that none of you care about, called Christophany. It's kind of like an Old Testament appearance of Christ, an imagery of Christ, that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. What's that imagery of Christ cloaking around us, of being our protection? So he rescues us from fear, and there he is becoming visible, surrounding us, cloaking around us. The Lord is both faithful to deliver and to rescue, and again, it is Christ, the one that becomes visible, that encamps around us. So the Lord has made himself visible to us through Christ. Uh, he invites us again as uh, we celebrate the Lord's table to take the cup and the bread to reflect upon the death and the resurrection of Jesus and to taste and see the God who has become visible in Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray and Pastor John will come forward. Father in heaven, we 
uh, we thank you that you are the God who has made yourself visible in Christ to be known, um, to be loved, to be protected, and uh, most importantly, Lord, the, the hunger that David spoke of, um, needing to be satisfied, to taste and see that the Lord is good, that's, that's an imagery of, of a hunger that needs to be that we would satisfied. So, Lord, we pray that you is our true and lasting hope, Lord, that we would recognize uh, that you are the only true and lasting hope, that you are the true and lasting hope uh, that never runs out. We don't get to the next thing and find out that uh, you no longer satisfy, but uh, Lord, we, we look to you and we hunger no more. We thank you, Jesus. Amen.